It's a pleasure to have uh, Chef with us uh, today. Chef Weber is a senior lecturer from the, from the Queen Mary University of London, and he has uh, published uh, many books already. He will be launching today the last day of oppression, the first day of the same. But he has, in the past years, published uh, the really well-known Red October, or uh, From Resistance to Rebellion, or From Rebellion to Reform, sorry, <laughs> in, <laughs> in Bolivia. And uh, more recently, a blood of extraction about uh, Canadian investment and imperialism in Latin America. He has also edited many books, uh, one on the new left, the new Latin American left, in with um, Barry Carr and uh, Crisis and Contradiction with um, Susan Spronk. So, thanks very much, Juan, for organizing this, um, and thanks to uh, David and the pseudo crew who are outside for publishing the book um, and to uh, the friends who are here and everyone else uh, for coming tonight. I think it's appropriate um, to be speaking about Latin America on International uh, Women's Day, which used to be International Workers' Women's Day or Working Women's Day, um, given that the very exciting uh, attempt to uh, make more militant and popular uh, what has become a kind of bureaucratic corporate event, International Women's Day, into an actual militant popular feminism again, through the call for an international strike, was in part inspired by events in 2015, uh, a women's strike in, in, in Argentina. Under the banner Ni Una Menos, uh, not one fewer, uh, against women's violence in that country. And Argentina, again, as we were just talking about, Prior to, uh, prior to the beginning of this, um, Argentina is now in its uh, third day of uh, very large opposition to the installation of the Macri uh, government very recently. And the first of those was, or the second of those, was, a, was the women's uh, uh, element yesterday. But women have been at the center, particularly the, of the teachers' demos on, and strikes on, on Monday. So I think... Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that this was going on uh, as we're talking about this and that uh, hopefully this is the beginning of a rebirth of a, a militant, popular, sustained feminism on a, on a world scale once again. Uh, the last time there was a women's strike, uh, it led to uh, important things in Russia in 1917. So we, we'll see what happens this time. Today, though, I want to talk about a few themes of my, of my book, the, the Last Day of Oppression and the First Day of the Same, and the subtitle is The Politics and Economics of the New Latin American Left. And I think I should begin with the title, because Pluto and Haymarket, the U.S. publisher, were very generous to let me continue with that title. Um, it's not a marketer's dream, I don't think, to have, have this title. But the, the, the origin of it has to do with uh, Ecuador's independence from Spain in the early 19th century, and hopefully I'll make it clear why this is, remains relevant today. When, when Ecuador achieved independence from Spain in the early 19th century, this independence, like independence in many other places in Latin America in the early 19th century, did not bring with it a social revolution to accompany this political uh, uh, proclamation of, uh, of sovereignty. The racism and, and inequality of colonial society uh, were in no sense turned on their heads. 
Instead, the elite descendants of, Spanish, uh, of the Spanish conquest now ruled on their own behalf in their own name rather than in, uh, in the name of the Spanish crown. And for those beneath them, much remained as it had been. Thus, a popular slogan of the early Republican period in Ecuador uh, emerged in the graffiti lining the walls of the capital city of Quito, the last day of despotism, and the first day of the same. And they were calling, therefore, for the social revolution that didn't happen with the political revolution to actually turn uh, colonial society on its head, even after colonialism had formally been defeated. And this was remembered in an interview um, with Luis Macas, one of the leading indigenous activists uh, in Ecuador today, as the last day of oppression and the first day of the same has become a slogan in contemporary indigenous left opposition politics. And I think this expression, uh, if in a novel form, captures something essential about the first decade of the 21st century in Latin American politics. Indeed, some on the left who are most sympathetic to uh, the governments of the new left period since the late 1990s have called the last 15 years or so um, Latin America's second independence. And this means usually some kind of reference to uh, a new relative autonomy from the United States with a whole series of regional cooperations that exclude the United States, uh, at least in, in geopolitical diplomatic terms. And it makes reference to the dynamics of the popular struggle against neoliberalism, which many have seen as, at least in part, an imposition from imperial powers outside, although with their uh, domestic allies um, and supporters. But I want to suggest that the resonance of the 19th century slogan um, from Ecuador suggests the need for a more somber evaluation of the last 16 years of the left experiments especially as we enter the so-called end of the left cycle over the last period, a cycle that ran more or less from the late 1990s until the last few years. The last day of oppression and the first day of the same is supposed to capture both the promise and expectation of the early stages of the challenge to neoliberalism, just as the struggle for independence from Spain also was filled with promise about revolutionary transformation of society, but also the structural limitations to what eventuated once center-left and left governments came to office and the limits of the political economic strategies actually adopted by them and how, for many, the last day of oppression in this new period became the first day of the same. So the architecture of the book is essentially a, an examination of the politics and economics of the Latin American left from the early 1990s to the present. And what it tries to do is make a broad measure of three clusters of groups, more or less, and the balance of forces between them. On the one hand, the rural and urban popular classes and oppressed groups and the forms of social and political articulation that express their interests, how strong or weak these were at different phases in this period since the early 1990s. On the other hand, domestic ruling classes and their ability to articulate their interests socially, politically, militarily, ideologically, and so on. And on the third hand, uh, the, the cluster of imperialism, most importantly the United States, but not just the United States, uh, uh, as we can talk about uh, further. So the shifting dynamics between what I think are sometimes tr treated as static entities, but are rather uh, fairly dynamic shifting uh, balance of forces across these three clusters over this period, with very important outcomes. 
And when I talk about the left in this book, I'm talking about the left in the broadest sense um, that we can think of. That is to say, in all of the uh, left's social movement, trade union, peasant association, and regime modalities. So we're not just looking at uh, left parties once they come into office and the basic policy turns and shifts of governments, which has been the uh, preeminent concern of, of much of the commentary, but the left also conceived in terms of its social base, in terms of its political base, in terms of its uh, different dynamics. So the book looks at a series of themes across the whole uh, region uh, in, a broad, in a broad sweep, looking at patterns of capital accumulation, new forms that class struggle has assumed, evolving state forms, key political crises and turning points, Latin America's position in the world market, and the contradictions of processes of regional integration over this period. And all of these themes are then uh, uh, concretized in discussions of a closer nature empirically around Bolivia, Chile, Venezuela, Ecuador, Brazil, and Argentina. So what I'm going to do today is divide the talk into two basic parts. The first part focus on a few of the theoretical currents that run throughout the whole book. And then the second part tried to offer a cursory periodization of the left uh, uh, from 1990 until the present and try to give a sense of where we were and where we are uh, today in that, in that dynamic. But just to foreshadow a bit that periodization so you have it in your heads as I move through the theoretical components, the basic idea is that they have four historical phases from the early 1990s. You have the period from 1990 until 2000. And just to say, it's not because I'm bad at math, although I'm not very good at math, that these stages overlap. It's intentional. Uh, these are not uh, rigid, rigid, uh, rigid phases. So between 1990 and 2000, you have a basic period of neoliberal hegemony. That is, right-wing advance, left-wing retreat uh, uh, as the general dynamic of this period. Towards the end of that period, between 1998 and then moving into the second period, 1998 until 2003, you have a crisis of neoliberal hegemony that begins as a crisis which is economic and then becomes socio uh, sociological, political, and ideological in different ways. And through that, the rearticulation of an extra-parliamentary left. That's 1998 till 2003. Between 2003 and 2011, this extra-parliamentary left uh, finds a muted expression uh, in electoral form through center-left and left governments. These come to office just as the commodities boom is happening, and that commodities boom allows for the material basis of the consolidation of what I call, um, following Eduardo Gudinas, the compensatory state. And then from 2011 to the present, you have the delayed reverberation of the worst global crisis of capitalism since the 1930s, delayed landing on the shores of Latin America. Latin America, for a period, seemed to be outside of this, um, uh, but was clearly, was clearly not. It, it really uh, arrives in, in Latin America massively uh, beginning in 2011, 2012, in different periods. And not coincidentally, this coincide, coincides with the beginnings of the end of the political cycle of at least this, this section of the left. So I'll get back to that and think of those uh, those periods as I move through these three theoretical currents. The first is the fact that the rise of the left in Latin America rejuvenated in much of the mainstream social scientific literature discussions of uh, problems of inequality in the region. As many of you will know, Latin America is the most unequal uh, region of the world. Um, and 
while clearly this, this return on the part of mainstream social science to the question of inequality is something to celebrate, uh, and this is taking part in a, in a wider turn in mainstream social science with uh, Piketty's book and so on last year, the uh, focus has been in the mainstream social scientific literature in Latin America, inflected with notions of inequality of Weberian historical sociology on the one hand, and liberal democratic theory on the other hand. Sometimes this is very explicit, sometimes this is implicit. But that is the basic parameter of much of the debate uh, framing this. And in economic terms, basically uh, within the limits of a debate between neo-structuralist economics associated with the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, to, to the, to the, on, the, on the left of mainstream debate towards against neoclassical economics. And as a result of these very thin parameters of debate, um, the discussion has been impoverished by uh, extremely uh, underdeveloped notions and conceptualizations of democracy and idealized conceptions of the key categories of capitalism, class, and social relations of oppression. Because liberal ideology, whether it's acknowledged or not by liberal ideologues writing in these currents, because liberal ideology fundamentally conceives capitalist markets as spheres, spheres of opportunity, which are either to be seized or to be missed, even if they are to be regulated at the margins, it is fundamentally incapable of comprehending the market as fundamentally a field of coercion. And liberalism is thus unable to understand movements for freedom from the market rather than simply within the market. It, it is literally incapable of conceiving them. And that is, thus it is literally incapable of framing some of the most important uh, popular movements in Latin America over the last 15 years. It has no cognitive tools to understand them. The invulnerability of the economic sphere to democratic power under capitalism is sanctified in liberal conceptions of democracy and consequently severely restricts the horizons of human emancipation. My book tries to show how inept the liberal framework is, how all-encompassing the liberal framework is in terms of uh, framing the recent debates, and how inept it is at tackling the fundamental concerns of the social movements and some of the parties of the left in the region uh, which have forced these questions onto the agenda over the last two decades. And in light of the failings of these dominant schemas, I offer a distinct approach to inequality. And the stress here is on the totalizing power of capital and processual and relational conceptualizations of class relations. And class relations as they are internally related to other forms of social impression, gender, sexuality, race, nation, and so on. And how all, of the, how all of this operates in contemporary Latin American capitalism. So if class, following E.P. Thompson, is understood as a living relational phenomenon, then it is necessarily conceived, and this is something that E.P. Thompson himself missed, it is necessarily conceived as also being multiply determined in and through gender, race, sexuality, and nation in present-day Latin American societies. From this vantage point, the latter social oppressions are not dismissed as mere epiphenomena of class structure, nor are they reduced to symptoms of class exploitation. Yet the way in which these multiple forms of social oppression constitute capitalist society alongside class can only be fully comprehended when they are conceptualized as being internally related to class once capitalism has been installed. <clears throat> class, gender, and race, then, 
are a dialectical unity of multiple determinations rather than a series of separate spheres. They are discrete phenomena, but they are only comprehensible when shown to be in interaction with one another in concrete, historically specific settings. And some of the ways I tried to show how this operates is in the intensification of extractive capitalism in uh, agro-industrial commodities, mining minerals, natural gas and oil extraction, which have been targeting dispossession of land, uh, and in particular indigenous, uh, indigenous access to land through uh, um, dynamics of capital and the state, uh, mobilizing uh, racist ideologies of framing indigenous populations. And the, the, the response to this has been, at one and the same time, a combined liberation struggle rooted in indigenous liberation and a class politics. There are many other examples, but this is just one of the dynamics of, of this. So in summary, the approach to inequality sees class exploitation and the totalizing power of capital in the most expansive sense, operating across national, regional, and international terrains. And moving through, and here I'm following uh, Ben Selwyn, across five distinct but interconnected and mutually constituting moments of class relations broadly conceived. Within the classic sphere of production, the workplace, where surplus value is generated by workers and extracted by capital. Second, within the sphere of exchange, the labor market, where workers' labor power is institutionally organized so, so that it can be sold to capital for its subsequent exploitation in the workplace, and where workers' wages constitute effective demand for capital's products. Third, within the so-called private sphere, or the family, where mostly women's unpaid labor contributes to the generational reproduction of the labor force, but also social reproductive labor that is paid, which is mostly done by women in, in schools, healthcare, and so on. Fourthly, through race and racism, which facilitates the generation of categories of workers for, for particular occupations, reproduces cultural distinctions and divisions among laboring classes, and therefore justifies unequal economic rewards on the basis of ethnicity or race. And fifthly, and this is massively important in the current context of intensifying extractive capitalism in the region, capitalist societies interface with its substratum, nature, where the latter is commodified and used by capital as an input into production and as a dumping ground for waste production. So across these five mutually constituting moments, of Latin American capitalism is the way, I think, to more fruitfully think about inequality in the contemporary period than any of the Weberian historical, sociological, or liberal democratic theorizations of the contemporary period. The second theoretical thread that runs through this is um, arguing for the recovery of the romantic tradition within Marxism. That tradition which offers a total critique of bourgeois civilization by drawing selectively from the pre-capitalist past and combining this dialectically with emancipatory visions of a post-capitalist future. So this is not the conservative, nostalgic, romantic turn to the past. This is the selective drawing on the pre-capitalist past as a source of inspiration and tradition for a post-capitalist future. And we'll talk about what that means. My inclination here in returning to the romantic threads within Marxism is in response to what I see as a new orthodoxy emerging out of the state ideologies, particularly of the Andean New Left, Bolivia, especially in the writings of Alvaro Garcia Guinera, the vice president, one of the most important Marxist theorists of the, 
of the region, but also in the discourse of Rafael Correa, the president of, of, of Ecuador, and Nicolas Maduro, and previously Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But in particular, Álvaro García Linera uh, synthesizes this when he defends as progressive the extension of large-scale uh, mining, natural gas and oil extraction, and agro-industrial monocropping in alliance with multinational capital, who are now called partners rather than bosses in this relationship. And García Linera explicitly embraces a stagist linear conception of development, which mirrors almost precisely in his early iterations in 2011, the 1930s, 1940s uh, Stalinist Communist Party of, of, of Bolivia. That is to say, you start with feudalism, you move through industrial capitalism, and you arrive in García Linera's conception 50 to 100 years in the future at a classless uh, communism. So the generations now can only be seen, their, their purpose is self-exploitation for the, the emancipation some distant, uh, some distant uh, future. And in this, in, in this idea, left and indigenous critics of this latest iteration of extractive capitalism in Latin America are condemned as naive romantics, or worse, the useful idiots of imperialism. A return to romantic Marxism can help us to understand, I think, left and indigenous critics of extractive capitalism in a different light. And in the, in the Latin American scenario, we should return especially, I think, to the work of the early 20th century Peruvian Marxist Jose Carlos Mariátegui. The argument here is that there is a utopian revolutionary dialectic of, of the pre-capitalist past and the socialist future running through Mariátegui's core works. And the romantic thread of Mariátegui's thought was in many ways a response to precisely this kind of prevalent evolutionist and economistic Marxism that was dominate, dominated at the time. So the common turn denounced Mariátegui as a populist, where the left populist of APRA in his contemporary proof denounced him as an orthodox Stalinist, which I think, he, which I think was, it, those are the right people to be making angry on the left in that period. And I think a creative return to Mariátegui in the current period allows us to read the opposition of left and, and indigenous critique and also socio-ecological struggle of a radical kind today uh, in a way that is, that is not dismissive but sees them as fundamental to any post-capitalist future uh, worth having in the Latin American context. And what is more, we can see in the biographies of activists that I talk about in this book, and in particular focusing on the biographies of indigenous activists in uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, a realization in concrete form of the romantic Marxist tradition and critique. So this isn't just an abstract uh, theorization calling for Mariátegui, but arguing that you can see Mariátegui's theorization in concrete forms and concrete struggles as they play out in the contemporary period. The third uh, dynamic, and I know I'm going over these quickly, but I want to talk about the real, real part of Latin America as well. So the last third current here is a, a borrowing from the recent Gramscian season uh, in Latin America, particularly in terms of Gramsci's conception of passive revolution and its utility for understanding the dynamics of the left turn in recent decades. Passive revolution for Gramsci involves an unequal and dialectical combination of transformative and restorative tendencies simultaneously in the same political period, transformative and restorative. Ultimately, however, it is possible to discern in hindsight which tendency dominates the character of a given epoch. The transformative dynamics of passive revolution mean 
that it involves changes in relation to the preceding period. But these changes are, in the end, limited to such a degree that the fundamental underlying relations of domination in society persist, even if their political expressions have been altered, even if the personnel occupying the state has been altered. The last day of oppression and the first day of the same. At the same time, the specific class content of passive revolutions in contemporary Latin America can vary within certain limits. That is to say, the different degrees to which particular components of popular demands are incorporated within new left governments, the transformative tendency, within a matrix that ultimately sustains the fundamental relations of domination that these left governments inherited, the restorative tendency. Passive revolutions involve neither total restoration of the old order, this isn't to say nothing has changed, but nor does it involve radical revolution. Instead, they involve a dialectic of revolution restoration, transformation, preservation. Capacities for social mobilization from below in early stages are contained or co-opted or selectively repressed. When the political initiative of sections of the dominant classes is restored in new configurations of power. So rather than an instantaneous restoration, there is rather a molecular change in the balance of forces under passive revolution, <clears throat> gradually draining the capacities for self-organization and self-activity from below through co-optation, through uh, processes of bureaucratization, incorporation into state apparatuses, and so on, guaranteeing eventually passivity to the new order and, and encouraging demobilization or only mobilization which is instrumental to the state. So one of the tasks I want to argue is to figure out in the periodization, something that I'm going to try to do in, in, in cursory terms in the rest of my talk, which parts of this long passive revolution do you see the transformative potentiality stressed, which part do you see the restorative tendency stressed, and what is the overall character of this period in hindsight, because we are at the end of the cycle. So let's begin with that first phase, the early 1990s. I think it would be very difficult to argue if you were in 1990 or to have foreseen that by the end of that decade, the left in Latin America, conceived in social, political, and uh, sociological terms, would be the leading edge of resistance in the, in the, in the world to neoliberalism. Because in 1990, I think it's uncontroversial to say that the Latin American left was at its lowest point in its entire history, measured along <coughs> any uh, definition you want. This had to do with the previous decades, the 70s and 80s, annihilation, in part physical and military, military annihilation of huge layers of the left. So on the one hand, you had the installation of bureaucratic authoritarian regimes in the southern cone, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, and so on, in which huge layers of the organized political left, the labor union left, the peasant associations left, broader movements aligned with those, and so on, were literally physically annihilated uh, from, uh, from the scene, or disappeared, or forced into exile, and this had an impact not only in terms of the immediate terrorization and elimination of huge leaderships of the left, but it had a generational impact in eliminating that layer which would 
uh, normally have been able to transmit the mechanisms of memory, organizational experiences, and so on, into the next generation of, of, of the left. So it's not surprising that the recovery of this and articulation of the new left was much delayed. In Central America, it took the form of the counterinsurgency dynamics against the uh, mass guerrilla insurgencies of the 1980s in Guatemala, El Salvador, the defeat of the Nicaraguan Revolution, and so on. Of course, backed by, uh, by Reagan in this 1980s campaign. Massive terrorization, literally hundreds of thousands of people murdered in this, in this dynamic. That part of the story of neoliberal restructuring, which really reaches its height in the 1990s, is something that we all constantly have to remind neoclassical, neostructuralist economists. That kind of violence, that kind of physical annihilation of the, of the social base of resistance to neoliberalism was the necessary precursor to its unfolding under electoral democracy in the 80s and 90s. So this was a very uh, violent uh, defeat of the left in particular. By 1990, you also had, on an ideological terrain, of course, the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union, which even for those sections of the left in Latin America who never saw in the Soviet Union some kind of model to aspire to, was nonetheless ideologically disorienting, fragmenting, uh, uh, and so on, across huge layers. And it had material consequences for the Cuban Revolution, for example, who almost instantaneously lost what had been the destination for 90% of its sugar exports. With the uh, embargo from the United States continuing, uh, you had uh, a, the implementation of Cuba's so-called special period in the early 1990s. Cuba's basically its own form of austerity in this period. 1990 also meant the electoral uh, defeat of Nicaragua, uh, of the Sandinistas, at, at the tail end of that counterinsurgency campaign uh, led by the Contras, backed by Reagan, and so on. You have the retreat of center-left parties and left parties who often retain their names. So if you look at Latin America, there's all kinds of movements for the revolutionary left in this or that country who are now all supporters of, of, of neoliberalism. In the 90s, all of these, uh, all of these uh, parties moved to the, uh, to the right, accepting the basic precepts of neoliberalism. That is to say, the common sense debate in the 1990s was about the speed, the character of neoliberal restructuring. It wasn't about transformational challenge. If the common sense of the left in the 1960s and 1970s was that a revolution was possible, desirable, and probable in our lifetime, by the 1990s, you could, you, it, as, as Frederick Jameson said in, in, in a different context, it was easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Economically, the 80s and 90s meant uh, a structural transformation of the class structures of these societies with obvious but delayed implications for the, for the left. So public sector unions went into massive retreat. State, uh, state austerity, massive reductions of public employment, the selling off of state-owned enterprises, and so on, uh, the decrease of manufacturing employment, uh, the informalization of the world of work, all of this transformed the social basis of labor unions that had fed into left parties. In the countryside, you had agricultural liberalization, which led, uh, it contributed to uh, dispossession of peasants, massive urbanization, and these peasants, this, this surplus population, adds to uh, the misery of the informal sectors in large cities. The massive unemployment or under, underemployment or employment in very precarious work in <coughs> informal sectors. And this was, of course, the height of US imperial power, having defeated 
uh, the Soviet Union and seeing itself as uh, a, a, a unrivaled uh, actor in the world system. So the 1990s was a very depressing outlook, obviously not just for the Latin American left, but that's what we're concerned with here. But nonetheless, neoliberalism enters into its own crisis, not one created by the left, uh, between 1998 and 2002. In this period, South America, the dynamics of Central America and Mexico are distinct. In South America, you have a region-wide recession, of course, with different intensities in different countries but negative growth rates for four years on the back of two decades of neoliberal restructuring, which had seen in most places increases in poverty, increases in inequality, increases in uh, unemployment, and so on. What's important is that in the mid-1990s, every country uh, in uh, South America was self-identified, was ruled by parties that were self-identified as center-right or right, and explicitly aligned with the neoliberal project. Their answer to the crisis was more of the same. And whereas this had some ideological appeal in, in periods of hyperinflation and de- debt crisis of the mid-80s and early 90s, this, after two decades of failed experimentation, this no longer resonated with very much of any social base. And even without a political left, the political uh, apparatuses, the parties of the right, started to, all of those associated with introducing neoliberalism started to decompose. And you start to see in this period the first articulation of an extra-parliamentary left. That is to say, a social movement left, uh, uh, roadblocks, peasant strikes, land occupations, factory takeovers, uh, um, militant strikes, and so on, with different social subjects leading uh, depending on the different uh, social formations you're talking about. So in Argentina, unemployed workers, very important in the late 1990s, early 2000s, joined by downwardly mobile middle-class sectors who had their uh, bank accounts frozen as the currency collapsed, so their life savings starts to disappear, quickly exiting the middle class in this context. At the height of that uh, steepest financial crisis, you have major mobilizations in Argentina, 2001, 2002, laying the basis for the overthrow of a series of governments and the eventual installation of a renewed Peronism under, under Kirchnerism. In Bolivia, the social subject is different. You have rural and urban left indigenous forces in a new articulation of, uh, of landless peasants, poor peasants, informal sector workers, miners, and uh, public sector workers uh, set off a quasi-insurrectionary cycle, the water war, the two gas wars, the overthrow of two presidents, and the laying for the basis of Evo Morales' victory in 2005 in those elections, becoming the first indigenous president in a majority indigenous uh, country uh, in, in that process. Ecuador, uh, similarly, the, the rural indigenous movement is key, CONAE, the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities. But once the rural movement sets into, into motion, urban, urban labor movement uh, enters the fray, and you, you also see uh, the elimination of several governments in the early 2000s. And although those were the, the three uh, most militant countries in terms of mobilization, you see unevenly this, this happening in a wave across this period of crisis. So that economic crisis of neoliberalism starts to articulate itself as an ideological crisis, as a political crisis, even before the left had any political articulation or alternative to to offer uh, to fill the vacuum. That moves us into 
uh, the third of the, of the four phases. Because what happens by 2003 until roughly 2008, in terms of political terms, this phase I'm talking about is 2003 to 2011. But in particular, 2003 to 2008, you start to see a delayed uh, um, electoral uh, manifestation of that social extra-parliamentary left in a muted, moderated form. Center-left and left governments start to win elections. And it's, it's difficult to exaggerate the importance of this. Mid-1990s, almost everyone in South America is ruled by self-identified center-right and left-right parties. Mid-2000s, it becomes uh, impossible to self-identify ideologically as, as neoliberal. So what, however we characterize re these regimes, the only way to win elections is to run on a center-left or left platform, and even expressly right-wing parties are running on uh, a social right platform because of the ideological defeat uh, rendered to neoliberalism in that social extra-parliamentary process. The paradox of this moment, however, is not just the, uh, the typical demobilization of electoral cycles, but the, uh, but the change in the economic dynamics of Latin America in this period, and in, in particular South America. Because you end, just as these parties come to office, you enter a commodities boom driven by the most dynamic zone of accumulation in the world market, China, with the, uh, with the uh, uh, dramatic uh, price uh, um, inflation of, uh, uh, or price uh, spike in basic mining minerals, natural gas and oil, agricultural commodities, and so on. And what this allows many center-left and left governments to do is to avoid, in part, key class decisions that may have otherwise presented themselves much earlier in their, in their uh, terms in office. That is to say, they were able to, uh, um, to accommodate many of the more moderate demands of the social extra-parliamentary left without actually uh, engaging in a serious confrontation with capital. And the, we the reason they were able to do this because in a period of extraordinary uh, commodity prices, with modest increases in royalties and taxes, in the extractive sector, this generated what seemed to be radical transformation, because it did mean radical uh, um, infusions of state revenue. And this state revenue was redirected into usually pre-existing cash transfer programs from the neoliberal period anti-poverty, targeted anti-poverty zones, but with much, much more money than was happening in the previous period. Alongside uh, more employment and so on. And you have dramatic consequences for the livelihoods of much of South America in this period, declines in poverty, declines uh, in some cases of income inequality, although uh, very little in terms of uh, wealth inequality uh, understood in, in wider terms. But it did mean an improvement in, 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 um, in the living standards of the lower orders of society, almost uniformly, including in right-wing governments uh, during the commodities boom. And what this was was the material basis for what Eduardo Gutierrez calls the compensatory state, petty compensation for the lower orders as capital continues to uh, see its net profits over this period actually exceed net profits in the 1990s in most of these center-left cases. 
So you, the, the biggest single indication that there was no uh, confrontation with capital is that all of the multinational corporations that are operating in these countries at the beginning are operating at the end. Under new tax codes and new royalties, but they haven't left. And if you, uh, if you follow the idea that their only reason for being is pursuit of profit, and if you measure the net profit rates at the time, you can say that although this wasn't their ideal situation, they didn't prefer these governments, they uh, benefited uh, massively during this period. This was the material basis for Gramsci's passive revolution. The slow incorporation of both sections of capital that had been very hostile at the beginning, incorporated into sections of these new, uh, new left governments after earlier attempts at destabilization, and it also meant an incorporation and demobilization and bureaucratization of labor union movements, social movements, incorporating into uh, state apparatuses, formalizing their legal relationships with the state, uh, uh, feeding patterns of dependency and clientelism with these movements and so on, which effectively uh, lost their independence and autonomy in relationships with these governments. That's the basic dynamic between 2003 and 2011. The last stage, and the one I'm going to end on, is the, uh, the dual stage of 2011 until the uh, current period, the last five years, where you see the delayed reverberation of the global uh, capitalist crisis into Latin America and the non-coincidental beginnings of the end of the uh, political cycle of the left. Now, initially, many, especially on the social democratic left, who were supporting relatively uncritically the regimes of Kirchner in Argentina or Lula in Brazil uh, and so on, was that these regimes had somehow escaped the global, uh, the global crisis. And they pointed to uh, some, uh, some basic figures. So aggregate economic growth in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, so obviously this conceals a lot of heterogeneity, but aggregate economic growth from the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, which is the most extensive database that we have, shows a deceleration of growth in 2009, the immediate impact of the crisis. But this is quickly, uh, uh, there's a quick recovery to 6% growth in 2010, 4.7% growth in 2011, and so on. The basic reasons for this, uh, initially muted uh, impact of the crisis had to do with the fact that Chinese accumulation had not yet slowed seriously. Demand for uh, basic commodities and exports continued to be uh, very high. You also saw a, a, a sometimes tremendous increase in foreign direct investment in extractive resources over this period. Sometimes a two or 300% increase in mining investment from abroad uh, in the immediate wake of the crisis. This had to do with a de decline in profitable uh, uh, opportunities for investment in the core of the world economy and continuing high prices in commodities. You also saw the ability of center-left states to draw on um, what were uh, unprecedented accumulated foreign reserves, drawing on these to, uh, to, um, uh, to subsidize counter-cyclical spending cycles uh, in, 2000, in 2009, 2010 to, to to mute the impact of the crisis. But even in that early period, it was clear that we need to disaggregate Latin America and the Caribbean into its various parts, because the Caribbean, Central America, and Mexico 
were very, very hard hit right from the beginning, 2008, 2009. And this had to do with the fact that unlike South America by the mid-2000s, Central America, Caribbean, and, and Mexico remained much more integrated in the U.S. economy. And what, what, what happened when the U.S. economy crashed in 2000, late 2007 and into 2008 was that they lost not only their principal export market, but also the uh, return of remittances, a key source of foreign exchange for many of the countries, sometimes bigger than any other source of foreign exchange. And not only that, but the uh, uh, temporary return of unemployed migrant documented and undocumented laborers, uh, the temporary return, because they, in, particularly in sectors of construction, which were annihilated very early on with the, with the real estate, uh, uh, with this crisis beginning in the subprime mortgage sector in California and then expanding uh, rapidly elsewhere. So right from the beginning, uh, the crisis was hitting parts of Latin America. But South America had, if you look at the principal destination of export markets, had switched from the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s from being almost uniformly the first destination being the United States to almost uniformly the first destination or the second destination being uh, East Asia, uh, principally China. But by 2012, China starts to slow down. Still the most dynamic zone of accumulation in the world market, but uh, several percentages of GDP decline every year since, or uh, an, an overall decline of several percentages of GDP from its high. So the lowest rate of growth in China in 2012 uh, since 1990, for example, and the lowest rate every year since, since 1990. And with no recovery in the Eurozone and no recovery in the United States, there's nothing to compensate uh, commodity prices and so on. Oil crashes in 2014, it now has recovered uh, from a very low to $55 a barrel, but during the commodities boom, you were above, well above $100 a barrel. So this has enormous consequences for some economies and serious consequences for, uh, for virtually every economy. And what you see uh, economically and politically in this period is therefore the rising to the surface of that crucial class question that center-left and left governments were partially able to avoid at the beginning. That is to say, when you were in a period of easy state revenue, very high revenues with modest reform and not very much confrontation with capital, you could avoid basic, uh, some basic questions of class. When austerity uh, 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 becomes the agenda of the day in the period, there is a class decision by governments uh, to uh, determine which parts of society are going to pay for a decline in state revenue during the commodities, uh, the decline of commodities boom. And so on the one hand, you could imagine a radicalization of the process through, for example, even modest increases in capital gains taxes uh, heavier increases in taxation in the extractive industry. In other words, take some of the proportion of the national income that capital was gaining, which was still very high in this period, and continue the social programs that, you, that had uh, helped popularity during this period. More radically, you could think about nationalization, appropriation, socialization of various parts of the industry, and a redirection of, the, of those industries into uh, uh, meeting human needs regional integration projects, and so on. 
that would be one class way of thinking about uh, a new situation of austerity and trying to maintain the living standards of uh, the lowest orders that had been improved in this period. The other, of course, would be to introduce uh, classically neoliberal restructuring reforms, uh, austerity packages. And unfortunately, obviously I'm not suggesting this was a technical question alone. This had to do with uh, a, uh, an orientation and the mobilization uh, and balance of forces in the region. But had governments been oriented towards uh, mobilizing and confronting capital, it may have allowed for more openings. The technical decision was to introduce austerity. Almost across the board, center-left and left governments start to introduce their own uh, muted programs and sometimes uh, severe programs of austerity and trying to convince uh, financial markets uh, that they were uh, still a good bet. Okay, this was key in Rousseff's, uh, 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 the early period of Rousseff's latest government before this was, uh, before this was brought to a inglorious uh, end. Um, and what this meant was that capital, which had learned to live, sections of capital that had learned to live with left governments uh, uh, by the late 2000s, uh, after periods of attempting to destabilize these regimes, although they had learned to live with them, these left governments had never been their first choice. And when economic crisis starts to hit, they start to move and politically redynamize either old traditional forms of the right or new forms of the right or, or configurations of both in novel ways. Meanwhile, the uh, infusion of austerity by center-left and left regimes meant the gradual uh, delegitimation and disillusionment of their bases. So that and in addition to the political demobilization that had occurred, through this co-optation into state apparatuses that were a part of this passive revolution. So in other words, there was no social base for the left immediately willing to mobilize in support of these governments any longer, even as the right were abandoning them from the right. And so you start to see both an extra-parliamentary and a parliamentary rearticulation of the right. So extra-parliamentary, this happens early in 2009 in Honduras with the military coup against Manuel Celaya, a center-left, moderately center-left uh, regime. Uh, in 2012, against uh, Fernando Lugo in, in Paraguay with a, uh, a constitutional coup or parliamentary coup. Uh, last year in Brazil, uh, the ending of Rousseff's term. Uh, so extra-institutional, extra-constitutional means of bringing democratically le elected left governments to an end, either militarily or through manipulations of, uh, of state institutions, without new elections afterwards. Then you see a, uh, uh, or you see, uh, where possible, a articulation of the, of the right through liberal institutional structures. The defeat of the Paranists uh, by Macri in Argentina in, uh, in late uh, 2015. But it's important to remember that the Paranist candidate in that election was the furthest right Paranist candidate in, 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 in recent memory. So this wasn't a left-right uh, obvious uh, battle, it was already the move to the right of the center-left, which was part of their demise. You see the congressional uh, victory of the right in Venezuela in uh, last, uh, in, again in late 2015, and in all likelihood the defeat of Nicolas Maduro in the next presidential elections, uh, and so on and so on. At the moment, 
You have a second round in Ecuador's elections in which you have the continuity candidate, the successor to Rafael Perea, Lenin Moreno, uh, uh, winning 18% less, 18 points less uh, than uh, uh, Correa's uh, party, uh, Alianza País, won in the last elections, but still uh, being the first uh, leader in the, in the first round. But for the first time since 2006, this is the third elections of the Correa period, uh, the first time where a second round was necessitated. Uh, and in the second round, you have a very complicated uh, situation in which uh, it is not at all clear anymore, although it seemed clear even a week ago, that Moreno was going to win. And Guillermo Lasso, a historically far-right figure from the uh, uh, financial center of Ecuador, Guayaquil, is uh, running, talking about uh, recognizing for example, indigenous rights to, to veto um, uh, mining projects and so on. In other words, a right-wing populist campaign, which he has no intention of fulfilling, but is bringing sectors of the uh, indigenous movement on board because of the extraordinary attack against them by uh, the Korea government. For example, using terrorism legislation to uh, uh, put people in prison who were blocking uh, uh, mining, uh, uh, mining extraction and so on in the, in the area. I think the, the basic point I want to, obviously this was cursory, I was talking about a lot of different places, I'm happy to talk more about uh, specific instances. But in general, I think you can say that rather than a shift in this, in this moment from a left hegemony, which I think was true, some kind of left hegemony uh, for much of the last 15 years, to a right hegemony, what you have instead is an impasse. This seems like a cop-out, but I'm going to argue that it's not. The reason for the impasse is that right-wing governments are winning and likely to continue to win office or to assume uh, power through extra-parliamentary means. But the right has no answer to the crisis that they're inheriting. There is no project that they have that will uh, uh, restoke accumulation, restore living standards uh, to what they were, and so on. And what you're seeing in many places, for example, Argentina, the last three days, uh, but also before, is, uh, uh, is an immediate defensive uh, uh, fight from the social left to defend the gains that they, uh, however modest, that they accumulated over the last period. And with no ability to resolve the crisis, either in Brazil, either in Argentina, in Venezuela, where you have continued recession, uh, this will mean a reliance, if, if history is any teacher, uh, to harder forms of right-wing government, either through soft forms of authoritarian rule, the, uh, the need to rely more and more on presidential decree, policing activities uh, to, in, uh, to enforce these programs, or on hard, uh, hard right uh, material that you see happening in, um, uh, in, in various parts of in various parts of, of Latin America, either through the military or through the paramilitary. So for example, in Colombia, in the last period, despite the peace accords, you have a paramilitary uh, committing about uh, two dozen deaths in the last, since the peace accords uh, in, in, the, in, in the Colombian dynamic. And Mexico, of course, continues to be um, a, a horror show, extraordinary rates of death and violence uh, with, with the state deeply, deeply implicated in these dynamics. So the right has no solution. The left, 
uh, I think, is at a situation where they need to, uh, I think it's very, very important that the, that the left honestly and critically reflect on the limits of what uh, the experiment was over the last 15 years. And this will be crucial because how we read and analyze that period will determine how we relate to the new left and what that new left will look like. So if it means a return to Kirchnerism, if it means a return to the PT in Brazil, if it means a return to Korea in Ecuador, I think the left has very, very minimal prospects in the, in the near term. They were fundamentally authors of their own demise in this respect. And that, I think, needs to be understood fully in, effort, in an effort to build uh, some kind of new left. So of course you'll, I mean, the, the semi-positive thing you can say about the current conjuncture is that there will undoubtedly, and already we can see, defensive moments of extra-parliamentary struggle and, de and defensive uh, struggles. But I don't think it would be wise to expect a very quick articulation, a re-articulation of a new left. It took sometimes 20 years, sometimes 15 years to build the last left that just happened. But what will be important is not to orient around uh, the next electoral cycle, but to rebuilding a far more militant, far more transformative-oriented uh, left over the next 10, 15 years, I think, is a realistic uh, prospect. Not to say the defensive struggles in between aren't important, but if the electoral dynamics determine how the left responds exclusively, it will be a continuation of uh, the nastiness of the recent period, I think. Thanks. Thank you very much.